Hey everyone, it's Miss Felicia J here and welcome to Love Life and a Beautiful Glass of Red Wine. This is the chapter by chapter episode. I started this podcast because of my sons and the questions that they asked me and the profound conversations that ensued as a result. I wanted to add to broadening their minds, so I suggested that they read some of the books that I love to read and interest me. Well, that didn't quite work out as well as I had planned, so I came up with the idea of a podcast, reading the books that I love, heard about, wanted to read, etc., etc. So here I am reading the books that I feel will inspire my my sons, the rest of my children, you, and of course myself. If you have a suggestion, email me at chapterbychapter256 at gmail.com, or you can put it in the comment section on my Instagram at chapterbychapter256, and I'll put it on the reading list. This episode, we are starting a new book, and it's by James Baldwin, and it's called The Fire Next Time. So before we begin, let's not forget our drink. I love to have a beautiful drink, and now I've got this beautiful blanket that I'm going to have to show you all. But this beautiful blanket that I have to be cozy while I have my drink, my book, it's beautiful. It's a perfect trifecta, if you will. So, let's get started with James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time. And there's a beginning little um, stanza before, and it says, God gave no other rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. My dungeon shook. Letter to my nephew on the 100th anniversary of the emancipation. Dear James, I've begun this letter five times and tore it up five times. I keep seeing your face, which is also the face of your father and my brother. Like him, you are tough, dark, vulnerable, moody, with a very definite tendency to sound trustulent because you want no one to think you're soft. You may be like your grandfather in this, I don't know, but certainly both you and your father resemble him very much physically. Well, he is dead. He never saw you, and he had a terrible life. He was defeated long before he died because at the bottom of his heart, he really believed what white people said about him. This is one of the reasons that he became so holy. I am sure that your father has told you something about all that. Neither you nor your father exhibit any tendency towards holiness. You really are of another era. Part of what happened when the Negro left the land and came into what the late E. Franklin Fraser called the cities of destruction. You can only be destroyed by believing that you really are the white, are what the white world calls a nigger. I tell you this because I love you, and please don't you ever forget it. I have known both of you all your lives, have carried your daddy in my arms and on my shoulders, kissed and spanked him, and watched him learn to walk. I don't know if you've known anybody from far, from that far back, if you've loved anybody that long, first as an infant, then as a child, then as a man. You gain a strange perspective on time and human pain and effort. Other people cannot see what I see whenever I look into your father's face. For behind your father's face, as it is today, are all those other faces which were his. 
Let him laugh, and I see a cellar your father does not remember, and a house he does not remember. And I hear in his present laughter his laughter as a child. Let him curse, and I remember him falling down the cellar steps and howling, and I remember his, with pain his tears, which my hand or your, ha your grandmother's so easily wiped away. But no one's hand can wipe away those tears he sheds invisibly today, which one hears in his laughter and in his speech and in his songs. I know what the world has done to my brother and how narrowly he has survived it. And I know, which is much worse, and this is the crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen, and for which neither I nor time nor history will ever forgive them, that they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. One can be, indeed, one must strive to become tough and philosophical concerning destruction and death. For this is what most of mankind has been best at since we have heard of man. But remember, most of mankind is not all mankind. But it is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. Now, my dear namesake, these innocent and well-meaning people, your countrymen, have caused you to be born under conditions not very far removed from those described by, for us by Charles Dickens in the London of more than a hundred years ago. I hear the chorus of the innocent screaming, No, this is not true. How bitter you are! But I am writing this letter to you to try to tell you something about how to handle them. For most of them do not know yet that you exist. I know the conditions under which you were born, for I was there. Your countrymen were not there and haven't made it yet. Your grandmother was also there, and no one has ever accused her of being bitter. I suggest that the innocents check with her. She isn't hard to find. Your countrymen don't know that she exists either though she has been working for them all their lives. All the yes, all their lives. Well, you were born, here you came, something like 15 years ago. And though your father and mother and grandmother, looking about the streets through which they were carrying you, staring at the walls into which they brought you, had every reason to be heavy-hearted, yet they were not. For here you were, Big James, named for me. You are a big baby. I was not. Here you were. To be loved. To be loved, baby. Hard at once and forever to strengthen you against the loveless world. Remember that I know how black it looks today. For you. It looked bad that day, too. Yes, we were trembling. We have not stopped trembling yet. But if we had not loved each other, none of us would have survived. And now you must survive because we love you and for the sake of your children and your children's children. This innocent country set you down in a ghetto in which, in fact, it intended that you should perish. Let me spell out precisely what I meant by that, for the heart of the matter is here and the root of my dispute with my country. You were born where you were born and faced the future that you faced because you were black and for no other reason. The limits of your ambition were thus expected to be set forever. You were born into a society which spelled out with brutal clarity and is in as many ways as possible 
that you are a worthless human being. You are not expected to aspire to excellence. You are expected to make peace with mediocrity. Wherever you have turned, James, in your short time on this earth, you have been told where you could go and what you could do and how you could do it. And where you could live and whom you could marry. I know your countrymen do not agree with me about this, and I hear them saying, you exaggerate. They do not know Harlem, and I do. So do you. Take no one's word for anything, including mine, but trust your experience. Know whence you came. If you know whence you came, there is really no limit to where you can go. The details and symbols of your life have been deliberately constructed to make you believe what white people say about you. Please try to remember that what they believe, as well as what they do, and cause you to endure, does not testify to your inferiority, but to their inhumanity and fear. Please try to be clear, dear James, through the storm which rages about your youthful head today, about the reality which lies behind the words acceptance and integration. There is no reason for you to try to become like white people, and there is no basis, whatever, for their impertinent assumption that they must accept you. The really terrible thing, old buddy, is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them and accept them with love. For these innocent people have no other hope. They are, in effect, still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. They've had to believe for many years, and for innumerable reasons, that black men are inferior to white men. Many of them indeed know better, but, as you will discover, people find it very difficult to act on what they know. To act is to be committed, and to be committed is to be in danger. In this case, the danger in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. Try to imagine how you would feel if you woke up one morning to find the sun shining and all the stars aflame. You would be frightened because it is out of order, of the order of nature. Any upheaval in the universe is terrifying because it, is so, because it so profoundly attacks one's sense of one's own reality. While the black man has functioned in the white man's world as a fixed star, as an immovable pillar, and any, as he moves out of his place, heaven and earth are shaken to its foundations. You don't be afraid. I said that it was intended that you should perish in the ghetto. Perish by never being allowed to go beyond the white man's definition, by never being allowed to spell your proper name. You have, and many of us have, defeated this intention, and by a terrible law, a terrible paradox, those innocents who believed that your imprisonment made them safe are losing their grip of reality. But these men are your brothers, your lost younger brothers, and if the word integration means anything, this is what it means. That we, with love, shall force our brothers to see themselves as they are, to cease fleeing from reality and begin to change it. For this is your home, my friend. Do not be driven from it. Great men have done great things here and will again. And we can make America what America must become. It will be hard, James, but you come from a sturdy peasant stock, 
men who picked cotton and dammed rivers and and built railroads, and in the teeth of the most terrifying odds, achieved an unassailable and monumental, sorry, monumental, (laughs) sorry, monumental dignity. You come from a long line of poets, some of the great poets, greatest poets since Homer. One of them said, the very time I thought I was lost, my dungeon shook and my chains fell. You know, and I know, that the country is celebrating 100 years of freedom, 100 years too soon. We cannot be free until they are free. God bless you, James, and Godspeed. Your uncle, James. The next part is called Down at the Cross, Letter from a Region in My Mind. Take up the white man's burden, ye dare not stoop too less, nor call too loud on freedom to cloak your weariness. But all ye cry or whisper, but all ye leave or do, the sullen, silent, sullen peoples shall weigh your gods and you. That's by Kipling. Down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood applied, singing glory to his name. That's a hymn. I underwent during the summer that I became 14 a prolonged religious crisis. I use the word religious in the common and arbitrary sense, meaning that I then discovered God, his saints and his angels, and his blazing hell. And since I had been born in a Christian nation, I accepted this deity as the only one. I supposed him to exist only within the walls of a church, in fact, of our church. I also supposed that God and safety were synonymous. The word safety brings to us the real meaning of the word religious as we use it. Therefore, to state it in another, more accurate way, I became during my 14th year, for the first time in my life, afraid. Afraid of the evil within me, and afraid of the evil without. What I saw around me that summer in Harlem was what I had always seen. Nothing had changed. But now, without any warning, the whores and pimps and racketeers on the avenue had become a personal menace. It had not before occurred to me that I could become one of them. But now I realized that we had been produced by the same circumstances. Many of my comrades were clearly headed for the avenue, and my father said that I was headed that way too. My friends began to drink and smoke and embarked at first avid, then groaning on their sexual careers. Girls only slightly older than I was, who sang in the choir or taught Sunday school, the children of holy parents, underwent before my eyes their incredible metamorphosis, of which the most bewildering aspect was not their budding breasts or their rounding behinds, but something deeper and more subtle in their eyes their heat, their odor, and the inflection of their voices. Like the stranger, strangers on the avenue, they became, in the twinkling of an eye, unutterably different and fantastically present. Owing to the way I had been raised, the abrupt discomfort that all this aroused in me, and the fact that I had no idea what my voice or my mind or my body was likely to do next, caused me to consider myself one of the most depraved people on earth. Matters were not helped by the fact that these holy girls seemed rather to enjoy my terrified lapse, 
our grim, guilty, tormented exper experiments, which were at once as chill and joyless as the Russian steppes, and hotter by far than all the fires of hell. Yet there was something deeper than these changes and less definable that frightened me. It was real in both the, way, the boys and the girls, but it was somehow more vivid in the boys. In the case of the girls, one watched them turning into matrons before they had become women. They began to manifest a curious and really rather terrifying single-mindedness. It is hard to say exactly how this was conveyed, something implacable in the sight, in the set of the lips, something far-seeing, seeing what? In the eyes, something new and crushing, determination in the walk, something preemptory in the voice. They did not tease us, the boys, anymore. They reprimanded us sharply, saying, You better be thinking about your soul. For the girls also saw the evidence on the avenue, knew what the price would be, for them, of one misstep. Knew that they had to be protected, and that we were the only protection there was. They understood that they must act as God's decoys, saving the souls of the boys for Jesus and binding the bodies of the boys in marriage. For this was the beginning of our burning time. And it is better, said St. Paul, who elsewhere with the most unusual and stunning exactness described himself as a wretched man to marry than to burn. And I began to feel in the boys a curious, wary, bewildered despair as though they were now settling in for the long, hard winter of life. I did not know then what it was that I was reacting to. I put it to myself that they were letting themselves go, in the same way that the girls were destined to gain as much weight as their mothers. The boys, it was clear, would rise no higher than their fathers. School began to reveal itself, therefore, as a child's game that one could not win, and boys dropped out of school and went to work. My father wanted me to do the same. I refused. Even though I no longer had any illusions about what an education could do for me, I had already encountered too many college graduate handymen. My friends were now downtown, busy, as they put it, fighting the man. They began to care less about the way they looked, the way they dressed, the things they did. Presently, one found them in twos and threes and fours, in a hallway sharing a jug of wine or a bottle of whiskey, talking, cursing, fighting, sometimes weeping, lost and unable to say what it was that oppressed them, except that they knew it was the man, the white man. And there seemed to be no way whatever to remove this cloud that stood between them and the sun, between them and love and life and power, between them and whatever it is that they wanted. One did not have to be very bright to realize how little one could do to change one's situation. One did not have to be abnormally sensitive to be worn down to a cutting edge by the incessant and gratuitous humiliation and danger one encountered every day, every working day, all day long. The humiliation did not apply merely to working days or workers. I was 13 and was crossing Fifth Avenue on my way to 42nd Street Library. And the cop in the middle of the street muttered as I passed him, Why don't you niggers stay uptown where you belong? When I was 10 and didn't look, certainly any older, two policemen amused themselves at me by frisking me making comic and terrifying speculations concerning my ancestry and probable sexual prowess 
and for good measure, leaving me flat on my back in one of the Harlem's empty lots. Just before and then during the Second World War, many of my friends fled, friends fled into the service, all to be changed there, and rarely for the better, many to be ruined, and many to die. Others fled to other states and cities, that is, to other ghettos. Some went on wine or whiskey or the needle, and are still on it, and others, like me, fled into the church. For the wages of sin were visible everywhere, in every wine-stained and urine-splashed hallway, in every clanging ambulance bell, in every scar on the face of the pimps and their whores, in every helpless newborn baby being brought into this danger, in every knife and pistol fight on the avenue, and in every disastrous bulletin, a cousin, mother of six, suddenly gone mad, a child parceled out here and there, an, industri an industri sorry, indestructible aunt rewarded for years of hard labor by a slow, agonizing death in a small, terrible room. Someone's bright son blown into eternity by his own hand. Another turned robber and carried off to jail. It was a summer of dreadful speculations and discoveries, of which these were not the worst. Crime became real, for example, for the first time, not as a possibility, but as the possibility. One would never defeat one's circumstances by working and saving one's pennies. One would never, by working, acquire that many pennies. And besides, the social treatment accorded even the most successful Negroes proved that one needed, in order to be free, something more than a bank account. One needed a handle, a lever, a means of inspiring fear. It was absolutely clear that the police would whip you and take you in as long as they could get away with it. And that everyone else, housewives, taxi drivers, elevator boys, dishwashers, bartenders, lawyers, judges, doctors, and grocers would never, by the operation of any generous human feeling, cease to use you as an outlet for his frustrations and hostilities. Neither civilized reason nor Christian love would cause any of those people to treat you as they presumably, presumably wanted to be treated. Only the fear of your power to retaliate would cause them to do that, or to seem to do it, which was, and is, good enough. There appears to be a vast amount of confusion on this point, but I do not know many Negroes who are eager to be accepted by white people, still less to be loved by them. They, the blacks, simply don't wish to be beaten over the head by whites every instant of our brief passage on this planet. White people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other, and when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow, and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist, for it will no longer be needed. People were more advantageously placed than we in Harlem were, and are. We'll no doubt find the psychology in the view of human nature sketched above dismal and shocking in the extreme. But the Negro's experience of the white world cannot possibly create in him any respect for the standards by which the white world claims to live. His own condition is overwhelmingly proof that white people do not live by these standards. Negro servants have been smuggling odds and ends out of white homes for generations, and white people have been delighted to have them do it, because it has assuaged a dim guilt and testified to the intrinsic superiority of white people. Even the most doltish and servile Negro could scarcely fail to be impressed by the disparity between his situation and that of the people for whom he worked. Negroes who were neither doltish nor servile 
did not feel that they were doing anything wrong when they robbed white people, in spite of the Puritan-Yankee equation of virtue with well-being. Negroes had, ex had excellent reasons for doubting that money was made or kept by any very striking adherence to the Christian virtues. It certainly did not work that way for black Christians. In any case, white people, who had, been, who had robbed black people of their liberty and who had profited from this theft every hour that they lived, had no moral ground on which to stand. They had the judges, the juries, the shotguns, the law, in a word, power. But it was a criminal power. To be feared but not respected, and to be outwitted in any way whatever. And those virtues preached but not practiced by the white world were merely another means of holding Negroes in subjection. It turned out then that summer that the moral barriers that I had supposed to exist between me and the dangers of a criminal career were so tenuous as to be nearly non-existent. I certainly could not discover any principled reason for not becoming a criminal, and it is not my poor, God-fearing parents who are to be indicted for the lack, for the lack but this society. I was icily determined, more determined really, than I then knew, never to make my peace with the ghetto, but to die and go to hell before I would let any white man spit on me, before I would accept my place in this republic. I did not intend to allow the white people of this country to tell me who I was and limit me in that way, and polish me off that way. And yet, of course, at the same time, I was being spat on and defined and described and limited, and could have been polished off with no effort whatsoever. Every Negro boy, Negro boy, in my situation, during those years at least, who reaches this point realizes at once, profoundly, because he wants to live, that he stands in great peril and must find, with speed, a thing, a gimmick, to lift him out, to start him on his way. And it does not matter what the gimmick is. It was this last realization that terrified me, and, since it revealed that the door opened on so many dangers, helped to hurl me into the church. And, by an unforeseeable paradox, it was my career in the church that turned out precisely to be my gimmick. For when I tried to assess my capabilities, I realized that I had almost none. In order to achieve the life I wanted, I had been dealt, it seemed to me, the worst possible hand. I could not possibly become a prize fighter. Many of us tried, but few of us succeed. succeeded. rather. I could not sing, I could not dance. I had been well conditioned by the world in which I grew up, so I did not dare yet take the idea of becoming a writer seriously. The only other possibility seemed to involve my becoming one of the sordid people on the avenue, who were not really as sordid as I then imagined, but who frightened me terribly, both because I did not want to live that life and because of what they made me feel. Everything inflamed me, and that was bad enough. But I myself had also become a source of fire and temptation. I had been far too, I had been far too well raised, alas, to suppose that any of the extremely explicit overtures made to me that summer, sometimes by boys and girls, but also more alarmingly by older men and women, had anything to do with my attractiveness. On the contrary, since the Harlem idea of seduction is, to pull it mildly, blunt, whatever these people saw in me merely confirmed that my sense of depra confirmed my sense of depra depravity. It is certainly sad that the awakening of one's senses should lead to such a merciless judgment of oneself, to say nothing of the time and anguish one spends in the effort to arrive at any other, 
but it is also inevitable that a literal attempt to mortify the flesh should be made among black people like those with whom I grew up. Negroes in this country, and Negroes do not, strictly or legally speaking, exist in any other, are taught really to despise themselves from the moment their eyes open on the world. This world is white and they are black. White people hold the power, which means that they are superior to blacks. Intrinsically, intrinsically, that is, God decreed it so. And the world has innumerable ways of making this difference known and felt and feared. Long before the Negro child perceives this difference, and even understands before he understands it, he has begun to react to it. He has begun to be controlled by it. Every effort made by the child's elders to prepare him for a fate from which they cannot protect him from causes him secretly, in terror, to begin to await without knowing that he is doing so, his mysterious and exorable punishment. He must be good, not only in order to please his parents and not only to avoid being punished by them. Behind their authority stands another, nameless and impersonal, infinitely harder to please and bottomlessly cruel. And this filters into the child's consciousness through his parents' tone of voice as he is being exhorted, punished, or loved. In the sudden uncontrollable note of fear heard in his mother's or father's voice when he has strayed beyond some particular boundary. He does not know what the boundary is, and he can get no explanation of it, which is frightening enough, but the fear he hears in the voices of his elders is more frightening still. The fear that I heard in my father's voice, for example, when he realized that I really believed I could do anything a white boy could do, and had every intention of proving it, was not all like the fear I heard when one of us was ill or had fallen down the stairs or strayed too far from the house. It was another fear, a fear that the child in challenging the white world's assumptions was putting himself in the path of destruction. A child cannot, thank heaven, know how vast and how merciless is the nature of power with what unbelievable cruelty people treat each other. He reacts to the fear in his parents' voice because his parents hold up the world for him, and he has protection. He has no protection without them. I defended myself, as I imagined, against the fear my father made me feel, by remembering that he was very old-fashioned. Also, I prided myself on the fact that I already knew how to outwit him. To defend oneself against a fear is simply to ensure that one will, one day, be conquered by it. Fears must be faced. As for one's wits, it is not just true that one can live by them, not that it is, if one really wishes to live. That summer, in any case, all the fears with which I had grown up, and which were now a part of me, and controlled my vision of the world, rose up like a wall between me, and drove me into the church. And that is all for this week. That is page 27. So we will continue a little bit left on page 27 of James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. I really enjoy this, enjoyed this book. The letter to his nephew is so profound for me. It's interesting to me that as he speaks to these things, we speak about race relations and we've got critical race theory now and all these different things that we discuss in regards to race between black and white people of color and non people, non people of color and how we all relate to each other that James Baldwin wrote this such a time ago and yet it still relates to our today. It is still relevant today. The things he says 
are still relevant today because today we are finally looking at these things and working on these things to change these things, to change the reality that he expressed to his nephew, to change the reality that he realized as he got older about the church, about being black, all these different things. I look forward to continue reading this and, and teasing out the different ideas and concepts that are still so relevant today. And this book is just so far so relevant and I trust that it will continue. So I trust that this book has broadened your mind, that it's inspired your thoughts or inspired a conversation, that it's changed your world somehow, helped you to understand something that maybe you didn't understand before. I think James Baldwin does an amazing job of explaining the understanding of black children, the understanding of raising of a black child and what that means to a black family and what it means to people of color to raise their children in a world where not everyone looks like them or understands them. He does a fantastic job and so far he's done a great job. So I trust that this has changed your perspective on the world somehow. I also trust that it entertains you. Whatever it's done for you, I trust that it has served you. And remember everyone that your flame, your fire will always burn. Lighting someone else's fire will never diminish yours. It will only create a larger fire. I've truly enjoyed reading James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time With You. Please turn, tune in next week so that we continue. We can, sorry, I'm so sorry. So that we can continue reading this book together. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Tell your friends. Listen together. Please remember to visit and follow, like, and share at chapter by chapter 256 and also at Miss Felicia J. And don't forget to check out my other podcast, Love Life and a Beautiful Glass of Red Wine. I've so much enjoyed this. Please enjoy your day. Have a great week. Take care of yourself and each other. This is Miss Felicia J, everyone. Until next time, be well.